I can't see you or okay. hear you. I'm trying not to make it a thing because we haven't started the thing yet. We haven't started the show. So what? So why don't you say what you want to say? Okay. And I want to find some things. way to convey to me what that might have been. I want like sign language or something. So this is our live episode. Yes. With Marissa Baradaran. Correct. About her awesome book. Yes. It has not started yet. We're just kind of chatting. Yeah. Students are sort of moseying in. And There's milling. There's milling and moseying. There's milling. There's some occasional sitting. The other thing is that we lie. The what? We lied. Hmm? We lied. We lied? How do we lie? Because you, we said that there was going to be a mailbag episode. Oh, yeah. That th- we totally The very lied. next week. And it's yeah. been like more than a week now. That it's been more a, than a week. It wasn't a lie so much as a mistake. <laughs> I mean, we, I think in good faith we believed that there would be that thing. And it just right. turned out not to be so. That doesn't make it a lie. Right. And we've gotten lots of good feedback. And listen, listener Asher, I think deserves an apology at this point how so because he wrote some extensive feedback which has gone unresponded to yes but i think he knows that we <laughs> we set low expectations i think he knows that we read it that we think about it that yeah. we will talk about it in, in due time yeah uh and and we've got more to talk about you just posted another paper yeah that was a yeah i mean we can do yeah, that look, I, I wish i could capture there needs to be, like, the equivalent of audio emoji <laughs> that kind of go along, like, the hand-waving that you just did. Oh, that's not, that's, we can, yeah, whatever. And I just posted this blog post about guns. Yeah. I think we got to talk about both of those in a mailbag. we got to do all that. Yeah, we can do that next week. Yeah. See, and this, I'm saying this in good faith. could turn out to be wrong. Now, you book our guests, right? Uh, I do. So, so I did try to get someone for next week and failed. Ooh. So I know that. Next week is not booked with the okay. guest. You failed. That's why I know. Did they fail or did you fail? Ah, oh, always me. It's okay. always, I'm always the, the failure. So is it two Bank we- on that, folks. Since you do the guest, is it two weeks or three weeks that we will have the Obama episode? When is Obama coming on? <laughs> he's free. He's got free time. He's a, he's a former law professor. You're right about that. And as soon as he publishes the law review paper and I puts it on SSRN, I will be all he, over that. He does not need to publish. He did, didn't he? Didn't he? Wasn't he on that paper? Boy, it's Which in the back paper? of my mind. It's some paper about crime statistics. He was on that. If he's on a recent paper, then but he I, doesn't need. Then he, I will be. Making you don't the have invitation. to post a paper to be on the show, though. Yeah, but it helps. I mean, it's good to have something to talk about. I guess. And you know, we you, find stuff to talk about. You want it to be a paper. Yeah, I guess so. Right. I guess that's when it works the best. I, I'd have to think back. We've had some pretty good shows. Like we, we remember we had shows early. Like we've always talked about. We had those early shows about like word processors and stuff like that. We didn't. Yeah. I mean, but that was so. For example, when we talked about um, when we talked about that with um, oh, now you're you're exploiting my my inability to remember names, yeah. which I don't really appreciate. <laughs> um, our guest is now Butter. here. Oh, do you want to sit? Saved, by, saved by the yeah, 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 It's like We're just, being saved by the bell. We're just doing a little bit of pre-roll. No, okay. You want to ah. talk, talk into the mic? Would you rather me get closer? Closer is always better, but like oh, you don't need to. No, no, no I'm fine. Oh, you, I forget. You're a media pro. No. You've been everywhere doing everything. No. Well, usually when I go, there's some, like, engineer being like, you know. Do this, do that. feedback, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, See, yeah. I try to, you this know. This is good. This is fancy. Joe doesn't realize what, what kid gloves I treat him with. Yeah. He thinks that I'm, like, really authoritarian with the Oh, no. These recording. guys are just like, yeah. stop talking. See? Say it again. And you're like, oh. Yeah. That took effort to see, say, you see to what, put together. <laughs> you see what could be, Joe? You yeah. see what could be? I, I, have, I do, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I'd be like, okay, I'm leaving right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had it's one. easy. I don't need to put up with you, that crap. I you are one. such a diva. Totally. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so no one wants your spoil. We're going to start. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys.
Um, sadly, oh, you don't uh, have to applaud. The focus okay. of our conversation is not going to be the sentence you just uttered, which, if a place like Wakanda exists, no, uh, no dot dot dot, no that would be an amazing episode. Yeah. This one, so this one needs to be even better than that. Yes. And it will be. Why? Yeah. Because we have now four-time guest Marissa Barada on joining. The four-time. Yeah. There's only four times a charm. There's only two other people <laughs> who have been a guest four or more times. Mm. They are Sonia West. Barack Obama. Uh, he has been a guest zero times. <laughs> if you can fix that for us, I would love that. Um, yeah, and uh, Steve Vladek, who has been a guest six times. Oh, what? Did you do? Th- did you have a spreadsheet, or I mean, how did you? I did not. I just looked it up, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. it is on our website. It says yeah, how many times you, they appear. There's a guest search functionality which right. you created. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm. And I, so I was able to look it up. Um, is there any other? Like, do you want to, is there any other stuff like that you want to talk about before we get to Marisol? <laughs> I, th- I thought I was getting to Marisol. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's right. That yeah. is an introduction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Your uh, book title is? The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. So I listened to this book four months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, since I forget everything, basically like two weeks after I've read it, like I have some notes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best. Joe, I, you just finished it though, didn't you? Yes, that's true. I finished it very recently. As in, what time is it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I listened to it as well uh, in Mercer's honor. Mercer is sort of a, an evangelist for uh, listening yes. to books, yes, uh, which I find to be harder to do than mm-hmm. reading them. Um, mm-hmm. But it does have a, there is a real speed gain for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. What did you listen to this book at? What was your speed multiple? Let's not get crazy. 1.5. You're a 2Xer. Uh, for this book, for nonfiction, 2X, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I can't, that gives me a panic attack. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. 1.5, I'm good. Mm-hmm. You know, so one thing that I, so I'm not familiar with all of the audiobook, uh, um, uh, what do you call them? Like, not tropes, but uh, um, devices, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so, so you know, it, it was weird. So at some point, listening to the book, I realized that when she was, like, pausing, yeah. like, she was doing a direct quote. Yes. Right? Mm. And, and it yeah. sounded like she was emphasizing or had a weird cadence, and then we're like, oh, no, she's quoting stuff. So I just have to learn yeah. my audiobook oral typography, and mm-hmm. I will understand what's so happening. So how fierce was the fight about whether you would be the reader of the book for the audiobook? Oh, they I was a little asked, I, was, no, I was a little bummed out about that. They never ask you to be the reader. They don't want authors to be the reader unless they're famous. Like, Hillary Clinton will read her own book. Joe Biden reads his own book. Um, but so again, just don't so comments, again so. why were you not the reader then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're famous. Four-time guest <laughs> yeah, on I know, I know, this I know. podcast. Right. Um, it would have been three, but, yeah. but... But what was random is that the first book... Um, they like got who cares who reads the book right like I prefer certain auditors like certain um, readers, people, readers yeah. who are just like these phenomenal people like the Robert Caro reader I yeah. can't remember his name but he is just so good um, so but they got the reader for my book was like this woman who looked just like me and I'm like why right she's like this Indian woman who has this you know last so they tried to match up like our ethnicity even though like the huh. accent like who cares and then this time luckily they didn't try to do that because I just think I'm sure she was great though this this she, other this Indian was, woman was she I mean, was she, great yeah she yeah. was fine great, but I, but I but they do that and that's one of my pet peeves is that they'll get like Jason Fung who's like the book is the Obesity Code. He's Asian, yeah. and they got like an Asian reader, even though there's like no d- discernible accent, right? Right. right, right. So I, I guess that's just like it's a weird pet peeve. Like, just, just get this is like, it doesn't matter. This is a little bit it, of racial politics, which is just it's under the surface, and it's hard really to figure care. out what's going on yeah. with it. And you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. interesting. I mean, gender, sure. Like, if the author's a 
woman get a woman because you want that sound to be like the author and then male, right? But yeah. but really it doesn't matter. No, really it doesn't. Well, well it does matter. it? I mean, you know, it's like how you talk. But this is getting into this book. Yeah. This is a trait. This is a you know a popular press book mm-hmm. with some academic ideas in it, right? right. And so. There are many ways you could have written this idea. Like you could have just zeroed in on the uh, on the kind of um, fractional reserve lending part and talked about mm-hmm. that mechanic, mm-hmm. right, as expanding inequality and why you know it, it, trying to explain like why why do the you know why do the Italians come over and yeah. are able to build up from nothing to ha- having a lot of wealth and you know eventually becoming equal not just politically but in terms of capital and wealth etc. But but yeah. why not for the former slaves like what's going on like you could have yeah. told that story academically but like you tell it in a different way here like yeah. and I felt like I learned a tremendous amount by the way but Thank like you. what were you what were your thoughts about that like how did you yeah I mean I, I feel like um, when you're you, when you write when you're an academic who writes in banking law um, and if you choose to do just academic articles your audience is like a few Federal Reserve economists you know maybe the FDIC conferences mm-hmm. and other banking law academics how many total it's like a hundred <laughs> yeah. right worldwide right the hundred people who will read the book especially if you're talk, trying to make an uh, argument about race that then cuts your audience down to like 10 people right who care about banking and race and so what I tried to do is expand the audience by writing it like keeping the, the fractional reserve lending keeping the technical economic type stuff in there but also telling the story in a way that would hopefully get to other people, you know, right. and, I, and I've had one of the big responses I've had to this book is like, you think it's a book about banks, but then you start reading it and it's not about banks. And I, but, you know, but I, it, it is about banks. It's just not just about banks. Um, so I use banks as a way to tell a story of the racial wealth gap and, and racial injustice. Well, I like it because it's not, you know, it's not monocausal. Like, you're not saying that banking... Like, you no. br- you tell a, a, a full story and you're kind of like, but don't forget the banking aspect. Like, don't forget the importance of banks in building up a community's capital, right? And Yeah, well, the reason I, I, I think banks are important here, they show exactly how the racial wealth gap self-perpetuates without any need to further the policies that started it. So once the racial wealth gap is created, I mean, and, and reinforced through various different policy mechanisms, right? So you've got you know, slavery as the first start, then you know, the Jim Crow era restrictions on trade, and then the New Deal era FHA sort of racist loans. Once, once all of that is set you know, as, a, as a sort of background, then you see how the banks, and as I show through their balance sheets even and their lending, you see how the banks can't fix it. And not only can they not fix it, but they help self-perpetuate this thing just because of the way banking is. Right. right? Um, so, so that's why I use banks, and I think banks are um, a really great reflection. Like understanding banks and understanding what banking is helps us un- explain sort of politics, helps explain sort of capitalism and finance. And so, I, you know, I this, tell my students in banking this is not just about. Right, understanding bank balance sheets. This is about understanding politics um, yeah, and about yeah. understanding inequality and, and all sorts of stuff because a lot of that plays out in banking policy. Yeah, and reading your stuff, not just this book, but the last book and, mm-hmm. and your papers and going to your talks and stuff, it's just what, what, one, one of the things that I get is a lot of times people think about the free market and capital mm-hmm. formation. They think of it very atomistically, right? Mm-hmm. That like it's just you know one person with you know not their own bootstraps, but like you know they're, they're creating mm-hmm. something of value. Somebody else values that thing. There's an exchange, so it's just this total like atomistic exchange. Mm-hmm. And and banks are what kind of in reading about the story of how banks have contributed to a certain capitalist um, uh, community or a certain uh, 
um, uh, certain nations' prospects. It's like banks are the communitarian side of capitalism, yeah. right? They are yeah. the way that we kind of coordinate in a not in a like political way, but it's still in a way like top down, right? I mean, it yeah. still is people making decisions collectively through banking that has enormous effect on individual prospects. Right? Yeah, I mean, think about what banks do, right? So capitalism, the the market in general is. Um, governed by supply and demand. And the way that that is governed is by market prices. Okay, But the thing that banks sell is money. Right. And where does that money come from? It's the Federal Reserve through monetary policy. So banks are a little bit outside of the free market mechanism. Even, you know, very, very conservative right, commentators on banks say, look, it's a libertarian fantasy to think that banks are sort of these free market entities. We saw that in 2008, right? You can't let the banks fail. Right? We want to. We want the market to discipline the banks. But what market discipline on banks means is that we all suffer. So no one has the stomach to, to discipline banks through a market mechanism. So what does that mean? Right? What does it mean that we can't discipline banks by letting them fail? Well, maybe we should regulate them. Maybe we should create structures that make their failure not so painful. Right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson, right? he says, banking, banks are more dangerous than standing armies. <laughs> right. Um, so that's an, the other element of it. It's this, this populist um, anger at banks. You see this with Jefferson. You see it with Andrew Jackson. You see it with Donald Trump. Is this anger at you know the corruption in banks and the cronyism and the banks that you know uh, manipulate stuff. And so banks become the bad guys um, because they are they are perceived as too powerful. Um, and they're perceived correctly as a collective ordering device, right? They're right. not just it's, – it's not just like, you know, my freedom to deal with you mm-hmm. and what we decide, it, you know, that from there evolves our, like, economic relationship, right? There are people who – so they reflect – they're the locus not just of, like, self-dealing, mm-hmm. but they can be the locus of, like, great community vision. Mm-hmm. They can be the locus of, um, uh, um, like, individual biases, collective biases. Like, they, all of that kind of political – there's a political economy of banks that you tell in this book. And I think we hear about them when – I think we're most likely to hear about them in the instances mm-hmm. when they are – uh, undergoing a failure that destroys mm-hmm. not just the the wealth of the shareholders of that institution, but depositors and others who mm-hmm. get swept into the maelstrom of yeah. destruction. And so, when you, mm-hmm. you, in other words, you're hearing about them when things are very bad. Yeah. When things are very good, you tend not to hear about them. Yeah. I right. think. Well, yeah. And, and Louis Brandeis has this great uh, during the 30s talks about the reason why banks are so. Um, sort of, he calls them like public utilities is because they operate using other people's money. And so as long as your money is safe in the bank, you don't care. But the second, like they're, they're making money on your deposits. And if they fail, if you lose your deposits, that's no longer okay, right? Mm-hmm. Like you go to, if Walmart fails, okay, you no longer have Walmart to shop in. Maybe someone else would do it. But if Bank of America fails and your deposits aren't protected, like that's that's your life, right? Those are your assets, and so this is why we have FDIC insurance and Federal Reserve discount windows, and and this federal government infrastructure that buoys up banks. So I want to talk about the uh, what I one of the vignettes in the book, and this book is so. It's a good thing we have two hours of discussion per chapter in your book because mm-hmm. that will allow us to really scratch the surface. <laughs> this is a 16-hour episode, right? Yeah. Um, so, so one of the stories, um, Jesse Binga, I oh, think, yeah. um, this banker in Chicago. Yeah. And what was fascinating is hearing the story of this uh, li- liquidity 
mechanism that was created privately, right? Mm -hmm. So this is before there was the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which mm -hmm. is the public entity that uh, makes sure that bank runs won't destroy banks by insuring deposits. You can always get your money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So before that existed, yeah. as I understand it, there was this private mm -hmm. uh, entity created by banks who could perceive the problem, right? They know mm -hmm. the problem of bank runs. They run banks. Mm -hmm. So they're, they are familiar with the, the issue. So they create this private alternative mechanism, oh, yeah. right? Um, which, ah, the story was just, there were several times when, uh, had I not been listening to it on the phone, but reading the book, I would have been able to throw the book, which would have been very satisfying. But it's <laughs> on my phone, and I can't throw my phone. So, yeah. um, it, what, so what happened to Jesse Binga? Uh. Jesse Bing, so, okay, just a quick little anecdote. I was at, last week I did uh, this talk in Atlanta at MailChimp and uh, Spike Lee was there, which was awesome. And I was like, look, Jesse Binga, you, someone needs to make a movie about Jesse Binga. Yeah. Because, I would watch it. like looking history, at him and saying, someone needs to make a movie. I was like, no, I was like, <laughs> if can only you there please? was someone who I had film him, and I'm a like, camera. Can you please make a movie about Jesse Binga? And he's like, you know. But like, so Jesse Binga is this black banker. He, his house gets bombed like 15 times, right? Because he, he's, he lives too close to the white neighborhood. This is in the 1920s, 1930s. Really successful black banker. He is the only banker, period, during the Great Depression who goes to prison when his bank fails, okay? You saw during this last financial crisis that bankers don't go to prison, right? That same thing with the Great Depression. The idea is that like banks fail and you know they didn't do anything illegal. And Jesse Binka also didn't do anything illegal, but he goes to prison because of racism. Um, Clarence Darrow, who is this you know famous um, attorney at the time, defends him and gets him out later. You know, but in the meantime, he's bankrupt and his wife has left him, and so comes to ruin. Anyway, so the clearinghouse. So um, before there's FDIC insurance, there are these private insurance funds. Okay. So the, 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 the central threat to banks is runs, okay? As long as everyone keeps their money in a bank, banks can keep creating money and doing the stuff of wealth creation. As soon as everyone decides that a bank is not stable, they will go and they run the bank. Like literally, will go run because the first 10 people will get their deposits, the last 100 won't. And so you want to be the first one in line. Right. It's a great illustration of the way that deposits are banks' liabilities, not their assets. Exactly. Their assets are the, are the loan receivables, Exactly. Um, not the deposits. Yes. This is a huge misunderstanding of what banks are and what banks do. This is George Bailey in This, Amer uh, this wonderful. It's a Wonderful Life, right? Yeah. He's like, you don't understand. The money's not here, right? I have right. your money. Because it's not I, supposed to be. It's not it's, supposed to be here. That's how right. banks work. And so You so hate the, that scene, though, don't you? I love that scene. Oh, oh really? I show it to my banking class. I, I hate, I hate the um, glorification of the community banker that yeah, comes yeah, yeah. about from that movie. Right, right, right. The assumption being that it is because of George Bailey's goodness that he's helping the community, and what it is actually is the FHA guaranteed loans, which we can talk about in a second. Yeah. But, <laughs> but so, so the the thing about the runs is you have to trust the bank, and as long as everyone trusts it, the banks can go. So the collective, if all the depositors can get together and say, "Hey, let's leave our money." in the bank, the bank survives. But if 10 depositors go and take their money out, the bank fails and everybody loses their money. So before we have FDIC insurance... This, this is the sense in which like a, 
a bank is it, when you deposit money in the bank, it's like you, the, the bank has taken out a loan. Yeah. Right. And but but from unlike, depositors. But right. unlike yeah. a loan, like when you put something on your credit card or a bank loan, like they they're not sure exactly when their payments are due. Right. Right. And if they're yes. all due, at, like if you if all your credit card companies came in and said, by the way, we want you to pay off your balance now, and everybody then you would, right all of it now. Yeah, all of yeah. it now. Right. Well, we yeah. call it short term liabilities, long term yeah. assets. So yeah. we all have long term liabilities. So your student loan, your mortgage loan, you know when those things get paid, like once a month or whenever. Yeah, right? absolutely. And our, yeah, <laughs> and our assets, you know, are our bank accounts, okay? Banks have very short-term liabilities, meaning that anytime someone wants their funds, they can get them. That's why we created government-backed FDIC insurance. And the only reason that we need it to be the federal is because the Treasury can print money. So during the financial <laughs> right. crisis, the FDIC insurance fund goes in the red, meaning they didn't have enough to cover everyone's deposits, and the Treasury just says, we got this. We, we, the full faith and credit of the federal government is behind our banking deposits. It has to be. Otherwise, the banks don't run. Okay, this is the, the, the premise. Anyway, so Jesse so, Bingham... So yeah. folks being folks, it, it's true that if 100% of them um, showed up and demanded their deposits back, mm-hmm. there would be a problem. Yeah. But that isn't what happens usually. Usually yes. it's a much smaller percentage on any given day that come and say, I'd yes. like some of my money or all of my money back. Yeah. So as long as you have enough on hand to cover the typical demand, yes. demand, um, then you, can, you have no problem. Right? The more people you so, have, the more it's like a river instead of a bunch of drops yeah. of water, right? The more it's predictable because there are just so many people and you can predict yeah. how many yeah, people. Yeah, like, banks you know. have a mechanism and you, and you have reserves, right? So the cash you have in the bank is 10%. You know, the Federal Reserve tells you how much to put in, but also it's like, okay, we just typically, you know, Fridays we get this many people pulling out. We also get this coming in. And so t- banks have that. A run is when there's panic. It's, and it really is unusual in that It's sense. unusual, yeah. and it's, but, it's, but it's also contagious. Like once mm. one bank fails, all banks fail. And this so, is the problem with the Great Depression. So what are the banks in, this, in Chicago at that time when there is no FDIC yet? Yes. Um, uh, what what are they? It's to me, it's amazing what they got together and decided to do. Because you you talked about um, if all the depositors could have a conversation where they could all agree, hey, let's not destroy this mm-hmm. bank by all getting mm-hmm. all of our money out right now, mm-hmm. uh, since not all of us will. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that doesn't happen. But if you've got a smaller group of people, yeah. you might be able to collectively figure out what to do. Yeah. So before the Great Depression, before FDIC insurance, there would be these small pools of money called clearinghouses. It just insurance that private bankers would get together. And there's one in Chicago, the Chicago Clearinghouse was a very um, prominent one. And they let in Jesse Binga. He was the only African-American that got to be in the fund. And all of the banks that were part of this fund, there were about 20 or so, made it through the Great Depression because they had this money that could be a a source of liquidity, right? So um, liquidity is like, I have the assets I just need money right now. So I'm not bankrupt. I just need liquidity, right? So they, these funds were very good. J.P. Morgan was a famous provider of liquidity at the time, right? He had a ton of money, and when banks were failing, he would just give them short-term loans because that's all you need is a short-term loan to make it. If you can wake up past a run, you're good. Right? So Binga is a member of this uh, mm-hmm. clearinghouse. He's making his contributions yes. he's uh, because his that's views. part of being a member, right? Yeah. Because uh, it's got to build up a fund. So, of course, as he experiences a problem, he goes to the fund and says, hey, time to help me, a member of the group. Yeah. And they say no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, mm, and and there throwing. is evidence that, you know, they, they, they say some really uh, derogatory racial things when they say no, you know, um, that um, we're not going to help this blank Banker, um, and and so most of whose depositors gives, are are black are, people, yeah, right? Yeah, because so. his his 
bank is all is in South, South Chicago. I mean, the segregation in Chicago was extensive. It was not there were there was no like border. There was just black communities and white ones. And so all of his depositors and borrowers were black. And he says he took eight hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of his choicest loans on properties, to give to others on the market, and nobody would touch them. Part of it was racism, but part of it also was that this fear that black properties would decline first and most during the decline, which is exactly what happened. So in a way, this book could have been a book about, um, about real estate and residential yes. segregation. In fact, in a way, it really is a book about that, yes. almost as much as, if not as much as, it is about banking. It is, right? because that's banks' assets. How banks, how individuals create wealth is through capital, Capital can be either your stocks, your stock portfolio, or usually land for the middle class, right? So capital accumulation is the way toward wealth. The way that banks do this is by giving people credit so that they can buy property. That's how banks make money, and that's how communities make money, and that's how banks grow wealth, through this money multiplier effect based on property. And so black properties were not able to retain their value, not only for their owners, but for the banks that financed them because of the, the, way, the mechanism of segregation and uh, the way that the government sort of loan programs financed white homes and not black homes. Um, and these were all just policy decisions that we have yet to recover from. And it, it is an ongoing uh, uh, suck of wealth out of the black communities. And this is a one-way thing. I mean, so th- the book is is written kind of historically, right? Mm-hmm. So we mar- kind of march from uh, the Civil War uh, through today. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and at each stage, what's well, so remarkable, like there's never a stage where, um, except for right after the Civil War, before basically mm-hmm. restruct- re- Reconstruction was killed in the crib, uh, mm-hmm. there was never a stage where people said, you know what, these uh, black people have nothing because of slavery. Yeah. And we need to kind of redistribute. Like at every yeah. stage, there's some reason not yeah. to redistribute, either inferiority yeah. at one stage, and then it's like, well, this is just the free market, and yeah. you know, there's always a reason. But um, there's but, a market-based reason usually. Yeah. There are some well, reformers after, after who the push, death yeah. after the death of, of mm-hmm. kind of explicit, like mm-hmm. biologically based. Um, yes. But but you know, and, yeah. but it also seems that at each one of those stages, there's someone there thinking, hey, we need to shift resources into the hands of people who we have been depriving, right? So there's someone there calling yeah. BS on the refusal to do some of these yes. yeah. fixes also, right? Yes. I yes. mean, Gen- Gen- General Sherman is there saying, we need to do this. Yeah. And other people are saying, well, nah, nah, nah. um, so yeah. it's, you, and they wind up winning over and over again. But it's not like there aren't people there who, have, who don't have the realization, we need, there's a problem here that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And but the, so there's a mechanism because very early on there are black banks, right? Very, yes. You know, after during Reconstruction, and yeah. the, the problem is there's not a, there's never a direct connection between black and white banks mm-hmm. and connecting black banks to mm-hmm. the rest of the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of a one one way transmission of wealth. So black mm-hmm. capital is used to finance mm-hmm. white projects, right? But mm-hmm. like it doesn't go the other way, and that mm-hmm. is the one continuous thread. Yeah, it's seemingly up until. Yeah. Maybe civil rights, but even then, there are some stories to tell, right? But yeah. do I have that story kind of right? I mean, yes. the mechanism right? Yes, and so the I mean, the market mechanism is you need you need capital to get more capital, and banks are just the way in which capital accumulates unto itself. So until you reverse the trends of white property ownership and black labor, you're always going to have this 
self-perpetuating effect. And there will be moments where it could be disrupted. Like Reconstruction is a great example. Right. And I and why wasn't it, right? So the whole point of the Freedmen's Bureau and Reconstruction, I mean, look at looking at the way that this the Civil War went down, right? The options on the table during Reconstruction were like, what do we do with the Confederacy that was basically treasonous? Yeah, you know. And so Johnson is saying, uh, and or once Lincoln um, uh, is assassinated, uh, Johnson is saying, we we're we're going to be we're going to play nice. We're going to have peace. We're not going to punish you know our brothers. We're going to you know join hands again and do this. Um, the idea though is that. Sherman and other reformers are saying, well, we need to give, you know, break up some of that land and give it to the slaves so that they can work it. And this is the one thing that... A seed of capital. They a need, seed of capital. You need yeah. something so that you can grow subsistence labor. But the problem is that um, what had happened in Haiti was as soon as the, the slaves revolted in Haiti and got land, they stopped growing sugar or cotton, the the cr- the cash profitable, crops. the cash crops. Yeah. They started growing subsistence farming, right? So like, that you would have something to eat. So you would have something to eat because it is every person's individual, um, it, it's in their incentive to grow food that they can eat as opposed to go to market. And so you would maybe put a little bit of cotton on your plot, but most of it would be food. The South was in debt and they mm-hmm. needed that cotton money um, because of the merchants in Liverpool and New York. So it wasn't just the South wanting it. The, the economy needed cotton and they needed cotton to be grown cheaply. And so they understood that if land was given to black landowners, they wouldn't have the cotton that they had before. Okay, and so that's where sharecropping yeah. is the is the the sort of you know um, the consensus idea is like okay, well, how do we get people to grow cotton? They can do sharecropping instead of owning. And so in terms of this wealth gap uh, and the story that you just told, and the way that pattern gets repeated over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. There, there is a moment where uh, one community, uh, the white community, has to decide whether it will mm-hmm. experience sacrifice mm-hmm. in order to mend the gap. Right. Um, and every time, it pretty quickly gets to the answer, nah, not so much well, with it's, that. It's right? a combination. Not so much with sacrifice yeah. Yeah. Uh, for us. Um, that, that, that does seem to be, I mean, the epilogue sort of says that really is the pattern of the history over and over again. But going back to Reconstruction, though, like it is like the it's a combination of sharecropping and and fraud and mm-hmm. abusive terms and the black codes, right. right? Which which prevent capital formation. Yes. Like there's never that seed. There's never capital formation because of a combination of law yeah. and private um, coercive anti-market forces, right? And so, like I had written down, like one of the ways of thinking about this is like having capital is within the um, within the normative system of the market is the power to say no. Like yeah. capital gives you the power to say no, yes. I'm going to do this instead of that. Yes. If you have no capital, you can't do that, right? And yeah. so you're a slave all over again, which is kind of your point in the early sections, right? Yeah. Slavery didn't really end because of the system, right? Right. If you're, you need, you're either labor or you're capital. And if mm-hmm. you, you aren't capital, you also don't have political power. And without political power, you're going to lose your right to vote, right? And that's what happens, right? Because right. The, you know, the, the, the consensus can't survive the 15th Amendment. So the 15th Amendment is just put aside, right? So when we have civil rights, we tend to think of civil rights, the, the 1965 Act and then um, the Voting Rights Act, we tend to think of it as these big government things. That was just deregulation of the market, okay? So 
what had happened between Reconstruction and the Civil Rights era is that the market, not just in the South, in the North also, and that's the story I want to tell, is both, both places was heavily regulated. Okay, So if you can't own property, if you can't vote, if, if there are Jim Crow era laws in the South and in the North on what trade you can do, that's not capitalism. right? Adam Smith's theory on capitalism rests on no barriers, no discrimination. Anyone can get whatever job without right. barrier. And so we, we didn't have Or that invest system. in whatever capital. So if and I want to buy yes. a piece of land because I think it's going to be great and I have the money to yes. do it, I can do it. But if there's a law saying you can only buy property in the area zone exactly. for your race, then... And contracts, yeah. right? So yeah. we talk about contracts. Your rights as a, you know, the, the way the capitalism works is the contracts are enforced. And if you're black, they weren't enforced, right? Or if you were, if you wanted to buy a property in some other area, you couldn't because the state wouldn't protect you, right? right? So these were all laws that were anti-capitalist laws. And so when you have the civil rights era, it's like, okay, now... We're going to just open the doors and everyone can compete in the capitalist economy. And an expression of a belief, in a way, the, the, the Jim Crow uh, laws and things like them are an expression of a belief that if you do simply let people do what they want, they won't be nearly racist enough. Like they won't, they won't keep things as separate as we want them, as mm-hmm. the, those in power want them kept. Mm-hmm. Um, or you wouldn't need those laws in place as much, would you? I mean, if you could just let people make residential decisions and financing decisions, and uh, th- there would be a-, a blend of things that might not be suitable to the people. Say, oh no, no, it needs to be much more. Well, that's racist zoning. Yeah. That's um, and then after racist zoning is struck down uh, early in the 20th century, the replacement with private racist covenants, yeah. right? To Basically, we, we need kind of collective social pressure and not just economic pressure right. in order to maintain all the goodies for our race and not this other race. Which is getting urged yeah. by, I mean, part of the book uh, in laying out these changes in the New Deal era and afterward in, in housing policy mm-hmm. and housing finance policy, uh, it, it sounds like those official documents were actively encouraging people to maintain those sorts of separations and their financing standards and all sorts of other things, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, this very is top a- down. Yeah, I mean, this is an uncomfortable subject to be had, but the data is there that whiteness was profitable, and it was made that way by law for a very long time, right? Um, if you were white, and we don't even have to go back to this, you know, post-Reconstruction, because right. that, that is obvious, right? Um, but post But undertold, I have to say, undertold. undertold. I think, so if you haven't read, uh, one good reason to read Maris's book, other than that it's very well written, you'll learn a lot about banking, is you will learn a lot about American history. Yeah, you I think a lot. I think the, one of the greatest tragedies in the history of our country is the death, early death of Reconstruction. Absolutely. There was yeah. so much promise. And we killed it. And we, yeah. and, and you know, everybody just, you know, we are what we are. You know, this is the United States. But people don't understand what we could have been yes. had that not happened. And, and you learn a lot about that from yeah. the early part of this book. And, and Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, um, We Were Eight Years in Power, yeah. um, which is a, a good book. But um, that quote comes from a Reconstruction era um, a, a black congressman. So, like, there was a time when there was a black, um, vibrant black political structure. Right. And, and, and it really, I mean, they got, there were some healthy debates. It was really kind of healthy. And yeah. the way, and the tragedy of the failed reconstruction is not just that it failed. I mean, that is a huge tragedy, but also that the story got revised. Yeah. Right. The idea, like, I think a lot of us were taught reconstruction. It's the birth of, a, birth of a nation. Exactly. And, yeah, a cause. lot of us were taught reconstruction in that it failed because it was a disaster, you know. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've had students come and tell me, right, like, that, you know, uh, my, you know, what the thing I was told was that the South 
you know, made a mistake during the Civil War and we paid for it with Reconstruction and that was it, right? And so, and then there's all of this revisionist history post-Reconstruction. And, and, and you don't even have to read my book. I think Eric Foner um, was a historian who's written several volumes on Reconstruction yeah. and on Abraham Lincoln. Another great Epstein. entree into the Reconstruction stuff um, uh, is Slate um, has this thing called Slate Academy, a series mm-hmm. of podcasts, yeah. and, they, and their most recent one is on Reconstruction. It's mm-hmm. quite excellent. So mm-hmm. uh, those books, Eric Foner stuff, they could be a bit daunting. So one way yeah. you could get <laughs> into right. that in a little less daunting a way would be the Slate Academy. Jamal mm-hmm. Bowie, and um, I yeah. can't remember the other host name, but it's really terrific I've not stuff. listened to those, but actually, <clears throat> you know, reading Maris's book is one. I, made me want to do that. Like, I feel yeah. like there's just so much more more to know mm-hmm. about this period. Kind of like when we talked to Al Brophy a long time ago about um, uh, the uh, Nat Turner Rebellion and, mm-hmm. and just the, the violence of the 1820s and 1830s. This other period. Like, yeah. you know, like, as a school kid, my history of the United States was, you know, there's the independence yeah. Yeah. and then other stuff happened. Maybe there was a war with Britain in 1812, yeah. you know, because yeah. yeah. there's that song. <laughs> and then there's a civil war yeah. and then the slaves are free and then we were great. Yeah. Right, it, we fixed it. We fixed we it. Totally like, fixed it, that. Uh, we saw yeah. problems, but like you know, there's this libertarian yeah. moment with uh, Nixon, right? And then yeah. every now, now everything is just natural. Everything's cool. Everything's, so, so but, this might be a bad question, but yeah. but think, uh, ha, you're, you're not. Um, we're not historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not economists. Mm-hmm. It, it's obviously very helpful to learn and talk about history. It's very helpful to learn and talk about economics, especially mm-hmm. finance economics, which you can learn a lot from in this book. But but we're lawyers. You're a lawyer. Um, it can Is it worth thinking or talking about this a little bit as what can... Uh, Going forward, or thinking about policy when mm-hmm. and thinking of our role as lawyers, mm-hmm. how does that? How, how do you think about the fact that you're a lawyer confronted with these facts about our history mm-hmm. uh, and about the way uh, economics uh, works uh, mm-hmm. under different conditions? Right? Mm-hmm. How does you? How do you think of that as a lawyer? Can I make a friendly amendment? Sure, I'd love a friendly. Yeah. I know, I know you do. You love it when I interrupt. I know. Yeah. Uh, uh, like maybe part of that is mm-hmm. the different ways that things appear to be natural and unregulated yeah. that you mm-hmm. referred to earlier, and maybe just hit a few of the highlights of like what yeah. were the what were the hidden regulations that actually lawyers had something to do with a lot yeah. to do with. Yeah. I mean, lawyers yeah. wrote the Black Codes. Right. Lawyers wrote the Jim Crow era laws. Right. Lawyers helped shape the sharecropping arrangements. And then coming back to the New Deal, I and mean, I think again, like leaving Reconstruction post-New Deal, we have this credit system created by laws. And this is where I think lawyers sometimes cede to economists and historians, but the law was very active, still is in either maintaining or eradicating injustice, right? So all of this stuff, I think lawyers have a a, a more central role than we want to acknowledge. What was the role of law in redlining? Do you want to just tell us that as an example? So redlining is, so after the New Deal, so after the Great Depression, everything fails, and um, there's all these mortgage programs to help boost home ownership again and to get the economy running. We've got the wars too, and so really an era of, um, where the middle class, American middle class is created and a lot of sort of shared prosperity. Um, and so what happens is that the HOLC is a government regulator and their lawyers and their economists get together and they draw these maps around the country that um, talk about the risk of lending into these areas. And so the idea is that if you're in a, a low risk neighborhood, they will underwrite your loan. So the government will guarantee your loan 
because so, we want more private capital. Which is a there. subsidy. That's that's basically government oh, spending to help you. I mean, yeah. it's the closest we got to socialism yeah. was the FHA. And, and it's turning down risk from lower than it is for some other real estate transactions, but turning that from lower to basically close to zero. No. Yeah, no risk. And, and, the, and the idea, before 1934, if you wanted a mortgage, you had to like convince the bank to like trust you. It was five years sort of max. You had to have 50% down payment. Wow. But what the HOLC and the FHA do is that they create the modern mortgage. 30-year fixed rate, 10% down payment. It creates the middle class because you've got blue-collar workers who can now move to the suburbs and pay less in a mortgage payment than they are paying in rent. And they're forming capital because yeah. a mortgage is like forced saving. Like you're creating an asset and you just have to pay each month and you don't have to think about how much in yeah. the savings account. And, and the United States is standing behind that risk reduction. Much as you mentioned before, yes. the United States can, can afford to insure banks against runs. Yes. It can also afford to insure... Um, the mortgage finance system by saying, hey, we can have longer horizons on our loans. We can have lower down payment rates. Um, that's something the United States, by, by gathering together the resources mm -hmm. of all of us, can afford to do, yes. right? Because you can do more together than you can individually. Absolutely. And so we, and when we do those, that yeah. with these low risk areas, mm -hmm. it sounds like those weren't the only areas on the map. No. Yeah. So, so the low-risk areas get a lot of subsidies and capital help, and this is the modern American suburbs, like Levittown and whatever. And then there's these red-lined areas. We talk about redlining. These are the, the places where the HOLC and the FHA created maps, and in the areas that were red, they will not insure those loans. Now, what metrics did they use? Race. Purely race, right? Um, and this is where the Italian and the Jewish and the Irish experience diverges, and we can talk about that in a second. But, but because the capital areas, is now intermingled, because, because the, yeah, yeah, because yeah. Italians are able to move to Levittown, right? Yeah. If you can move to Levittown, you can create capital and you yeah. can get a mortgage. But um, blacks couldn't, right? And this is why you have racial covenants and bombs. It wasn't just the people were racist; they were also protecting their property values. Because if you became a black neighborhood you couldn't get the FHA underwritten loan. So there was areas in St. Louis, for so example. So houses are worth less. I mean, that... that, that you, can't, you just can't... Yeah. You cannot and get a government-subsidized mortgage. And Which, it's the official policy of that um, government agency yes. that it will not loan under certain circumstances. This is where it's an official policy choice. It's explicitly stated in their manual. So the demand goes way down, and therefore the prices and go down, and therefore the capital... Yeah, right. It's is a it, cycle. Yeah. It's a cycle of a good cycle. And then also, like... By the way, schools are funded through property taxes, right? Yeah. So the schools in the property-owning districts become better, and the schools in the tenant districts become worse. And so this, this, the ghetto, right, the black ghetto is created post it's It's created before, right, through Jim Crow era laws and segregation, but it is made in, put in cement by government policy afterwards. So this is very much heavy state intervention, sort of social engineering. There was, a, there was an FHA loan where there's one community in St. Louis where the white community got too close to the black community, and the white community was being denied FHA mortgages because it was like it's a racially inharmonious mix. And so they just put a wall like a concrete five-foot wall between the white community and the black community, and then the white community could get the mortgages. It was very explicit, right? So this, and this is why we had racial covenants, right? We had racial covenants because we didn't want our property value to decline and come into the red zone. So law has to decide yes. whether to put its full weight behind 
um, sort of reinforcing systems of segregation in an mm -hmm. effort to preserve white wealth, or instead to say, you can't do that, right? The law won't support that. In fact, it will try to undo, mm -hmm. it'll try to undermine that system by saying, no, you, you, you can't use color as the basis for doing these or things. Or once you give up on the explicit doing of that, you have to decide, am I going to aggressively go after you know, private instances of redlining yeah. and, and actions by real steering and other things that continue to perpetuate. And this. lawyers were, I mean, just to, like the good good side of the story, lawyers were involved as activists long before the civil rights um, movement. So one of the uh, great books that I rely on is a, uh, called Family Properties. And there was this guy in Chicago who was a lawyer is a, representing a bunch of, you know, these Chicago neighborhoods who were not only not being given FHA loans, but they were being sold homes on contract. So a contract um, sale is when you don't get to own the home, but it seems like you own the home. So they're mm -hmm. kind of like duping seller buyers, right? So you're paying twice as much, and you by the and if you have one default, you lose everything. So you're basically like a tenant, but it looks like you own a mortgage. So there's a bunch of lawyers in Chicago that fought this and got some of these laws overturned. So lawyers have been actively involved in trying to fight this stuff. And then the racial covenant was a Kramer case in yeah. 19. Shelley against Kramer. Shelley against Kramer, 1958 yeah, or something, yeah. um, where lawyers er, finally... Earlier than... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, where lawyers finally start saying, like, racial covenants are against the Constitution. Thurgood Marshall is the lawyer that, you know, really from, you know, well before the civil rights era, kind of methodically picks cases that pick apart Jim Crow in the South. They, you know, and there's these decisions too, like do we go after the North, the segregation patterns that are happening there, or do we focus on the South? And lawyers decided to focus on the South, and that's why when we think about civil rights, the whole movement, it, it has this Southern focus as if that was the only problem. Yeah. And what I'm trying to say in this book is that the North was just as racist and just as... Um, you know, uh, discriminatory on several angles. The thing is structural. It's not just a few. It it's not just bad guys yes. in charge in certain places. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And um, and so, but the laws were not as obvious. And so, the civil rights movement um, very explicitly focused on the South. Yeah. Um, and it could have been another way. They could have focused on northern segregation. So, um, I do want to take a couple of questions, but I, I, there's just one more thing I wanted to add. And um, because there was a writer who who was. Um, earlier, I think last year, was writing about, you know, how th this authoritarian moment in the world where we mm -hmm. are, right? And it was just talking about authoritarianism and how not living in an authoritarian regime is like it's the freedom not to worry about a lot of stuff, uh -huh. right? It's like the, like I don't have to, you know, worry about whether a certain government uh, agent is going to, you mm -hmm. know, dislikes me or doesn't feel I'm loyal enough and suddenly I won't be able to get a loan or I won't be able to get this mm -hmm. job or whatever. It's mm -hmm. like there's a lot of freedom that comes from just feeling like the government is competently run and has yeah. certain like professional yeah. principles mm -hmm. of, of you know government functioning and that I never really thought about it that way it's like yeah. that is the harm yeah. of authoritarianism is just the way that it weighs on you totally. and gnaws at you right? one harm yeah well yeah. yeah one harm I mean yeah. there are direct and physical there are lots harms. of broken yeah, yeah. bodies yeah, yeah. Um, well. but but like yeah. one of the things I think about with this book right is is if you are a person of, like, even if you don't think of yourself as a person of privilege, like, just mm -hmm. living in society, the, the number of things you don't have to worry about, mm -hmm. like, because you just feel like even if things go badly, it will kind of work out because, mm -hmm. like, my phone's not going to get cut off, my cable's not going to get cut off, my water's not going to get cut off because even if things go really badly, I've got someone I can call or something mm -hmm. I can do. All of that is a result of mm -hmm. capital somewhere in your family or in mm -hmm. your support network, right? Mm -hmm. And that is built up over generations and mm -hmm. generations and mm -hmm. generations. It's mm -hmm. not, like, just natural. Like, everybody, everybody who's now 
born will have some network to which they can turn, right? Yeah. And so this, to me, like reading this book is really just, it's a story of, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. People who, through a series of decisions, not just, it's not natural like oxygen, right? right? People through a series of decisions have been deprived of that chance not to worry about crap, right? right? And right. because they don't have that safety net, it seems like there's yeah. kind of an authoritarian version of capitalism that applies to yeah. some of the communities. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of recent research too on what poverty does to the brain, yeah. right? So the scarcity mindset, right? Where you, if you are poor and you don't have a buffer of wealth, that leads that changes the the things that you can focus on in life. Right? Yeah, uh, and, and it, it it you know leads to like um, a, a stress. He um, one of the books that I read is called Scarcity. It's an excellent book. I would highly recommend it. But he talks about like having a bunch of different programs running, and that how that juice just keeps getting sucked out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so scarcity in any mindset. Right. So like when you've been hungry, like starving. Right. You you have this like hyper focus on food and you can't like you almost can't make decisions in other ways. Right. Poverty is the same sort of scarcity mindset where I'm focused on money. And so, you know, that's all I can focus on, you know, and there isn't very much give left for other things. And I I don't have that mindset. You know, Um, I I can focus. I can read and I can run and, you know, and, and, and this authoritarianism, like when I go to Iran, I am not, um, I feel stressed. Yeah. When I get on a plane and like we cross the border, like there's like this, ah, you know, like relief that like you didn't realize you were holding that tension, but because it is an authoritarian regime, because people do get put in prison, I, I won't. But but it's that mindset. But of you just like, can't take for granted. You can't it, take yeah. it for granted. And then the second you enter the U.S. airspace, it's just like, okay, like I'm free. And yeah. that's that's some that is something to, that when you have it, you don't realize you have it. Yeah. But the second you don't, you're like, oh my gosh, you know. And so yeah. that's that's the thing with wealth, right? And this is the problem of the racial wealth gap, where you have a third of Black families have zero to negative wealth, right? Average on average, the white Black wealth gap is massive, right? And so and hasn't changed much. Has over... not changed over centuries. And so if your grandpa didn't get this FHA loan. You just don't have that intergenerational wealth. And it's really, really hard to not have that sort of, you know, safety net um, of family or even a place to go. Like if you lose your job, is there a basement for you to go to? Is there someone who can just provide your emergency needs? Or do you have to go to a payday lender? Those are huge things that end up um, sucking not just wealth, and, uh, but also just psychological, emotional energy from people who don't have... Wealth. Before we take... I just want to emphasize before we take some, a couple questions that, um, that we've been kind of jumping around to different topics yeah. which we think are really interesting. But the book is very rigorous in the way that it goes through history and it, 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 historically in a timeline kind of shows these decisions at each stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like not, not rigorous as in like you, you convincingly make every single case about yeah. every th- single thing, right? Because yeah. it, is a, it is a popular book meant for yeah. everybody to read right. despite your expertise. Um, but you will learn a whole hell of a lot by going through these stories and realizing, oh, that, that's not a natural thing. This this happened because people made these decisions. So I just want to emphasize that because we have been jumping around, and the, and the book is not like that. <laughs> uh, no, it's yeah, it's quite um, it's quite vibrant and rigorous. Yeah. Both. Thank yeah, I, I agree. Thank you. So do we have any questions from? And we'll repeat them for yeah, we'll have to, because I don't have another mic out there. It can be. You can ask a question about substance. You can ask a question about what it's like to write a book. Excellent. What do you got? So I've already asked this, but can you talk a little bit about why you advocated for coastal banking? 
So the question, yeah, is, is why did you advocate for postal banking? Other than yeah. the fact that it's totally cool. It's totally cool, yeah. Because <laughs> we knew that. It's, yeah, so, so the idea is that um, banks operate with the government funds and um, you know, with this whole subsidy structure. We talked about the FDIC insurance, Federal Reserve, et cetera. But the market for banking leaves certain communities devoid of banking, right? Because it's more profitable to have a branch in a rich neighborhood to get all those nice deposits and loans than it is in a poor neighborhood. So over the last 40 years, banks have just en masse left the poor neighborhoods of the country. So rural neighborhoods, um, inner city neighborhoods, any kind, any neighborhood that doesn't have enough wealth, banks are gone. And so what do you do, right? So now we have this check cashing, payday lending sector, and it's hugely expensive. Check cashing takes away 10% of the income of people who, who don't have a bank account, right? Payday lending is you take, you need $500 for that emergency, you end up paying 2,000 because you're rolling over that loan. So this is an injustice, not just an injustice because it sucks to be poor, but also an injustice because the banks are backed by the government, right? And so I think postal banks could come in and fill this void as a providing sort of a public option. It wouldn't be a subsidy. This would be, the post office would just do a business. I mean, they're already in those neighborhoods. They already, we had postal banking in America from 1910 until 1966. You would provide a bank account, a checking account, savings account. You'd put your money there, you'd get your debit card, and you'd be able to use it and pay your bills without having to go to a check casher. Because um, post offices can't just ignore the geographical coverage issue. They yeah. have to comply with that geographical coverage yeah, issue. Yeah, there's a post For office in reasons. every zip code. Right, there's a post yeah. office in every zip code where banks aren't. And, and actually some colleagues of ours from, or some um, other academics in um, uh, this Kansas took my proposal and they mapped the country. And they said, okay, would postal banking be effective? In, in what areas would it be effective? And what they found is that there's, uh, across rural areas, we call them banking deserts. There's a whole bunch of banking deserts across the country where there are post offices. And so they found that, yes, indeed, there are, there's a ton of overlap between banking deserts and postal locations that could be used to, to, to fix this um, void. One one might have, we might have one more time. Yeah, for one really quick question. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me just repeat it yeah. into the mic. So, so the question is like, uh, is about reparations, yeah. and if there are people thinking about this now, yeah. uh, other than um, you know Tanisi Coates and yeah. or you know, okay, so Al Brophy. I mean, Al yeah. Brophy, who is a uh, at UNC in Alabama, he wrote a book about reparations. He's a lawyer historian. Um, he's done an excellent sort of theoretical look at it and look at the history of, of reparations proposals. Um, Sandy Darity at um, uh, Duke. Um, has also done some work on reparations. Um, he's not a uh, law. He's more in a social science or econo- uh, economics. But but it's an underdeveloped field. Um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, I think, just does like a broad strokes thing. And, and typically when you think about reparations, it's linked to like slavery reparations and there aren't real like tangible programs. Like what does that actually look like to fix it? And, and the way I conceive of reparations is more like truth and reconciliation, right? Like, hey, let's lay out like you know post apartheid south africa or you know the nuremberg trials what happened how did policies create the racial wealth gap and how can those those same entities that benefited from it fix it right um, in a way that is constructive and not um, you know to, to, that would allow us to go forward and be honest about what we've done Awesome. I think that's all we've got time for. Indeed. We've got to get out. Otherwise, you know, the next professor is going to, you know, be mad. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot, guys.